It is great to be with you, though. I'm excited. I'm stoked about the message today and the, the opportunity to teach. Um, the, the, we're going to be bridging the gap a little bit between Genesis and the book of Matthew. I've been writing on the book of Matthew for a while. I just finished the book. It's going to be out in March. And I'm so glad it's called Matthew Through Old Testament Eyes. And I'm going to make sure Miss Carolyn buys about a thousand copies and gives them out to all of you at that point. Is that okay, Miss Carolyn? Is that okay? Okay. She shook her head. So I think that's all right. We're going to talk about Christmas again today. And we're going to be moving up and talking about Genesis and Christmas as well. Let's see if this will all work. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. That's a good place to begin. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 is one of those places people often skip because there's all these names afterwards that nobody can pronounce. And uh, we don't know who they are very much, at least. So it begins this way, and this is the English Standard Version, which is Mark's, I think, favorite translation. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how it begins. Now, most translations, if you pick them up, you'll realize, well, they pretty much agree, except on the phrase, how do you translate that phrase, book of genealogy, right? Is that right exactly? And here's the Greek text from which it's taken, which the translations, all modern translations, Biblos Genesios, Biblos Genesios. I'd ask you to say it with me, but that would not be very fair. Biblos Genesios. Well, you can probably hear Biblos, Bible. It's a word that can mean book. It can mean a scroll, like a book that was rolled up in those days. It could mean, uh, it could mean a record, uh, it could mean a variety of things. And so that's, that's the book, that's the word there. But the real question is that second word, Genesios. What does it mean exactly? Well, here's some translations, some that you know. And this, well, the first, this goes up there pretty high. The book of the, notice, generation. This is the King James Version. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The second one is another famous translation from the early 20th century, earlier 20th century, the book of the genealogy. Notice that it's gone from genealogy, generation to genealogy. And then the second one, the record of the genealogy of Jesus. Again, this is the New American Standard Version, my favorite growing up, uh, the Lockman Foundation published in 1972. Very strict, very literal translation. And the next one, NIV, which may be your favorite, this is the genealogy. Notice the word book is not there, a record, uh, or uh, anything quite like that. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. And then uh, one that is a very good translation, but not many of you may know about, is called the New Living Translation, and it translates it this way. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, Uh, or the descendant of David and of Abraham. So that's the way that a lot of modern translations are doing it. So the question is, where does this phrase, and what does this phrase, Biblos Genesios, come from? Well, the exact phrase, Biblos Genesios, is found twice in the Greek version of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and Genesis chapter 5, Verse 1. I want to take a few minutes and analyze those with you so that I think we'll get a better sense of what this beginning is really about. Because the book itself is a lot more than just a genealogy of Jesus. And there's a perfectly good Greek word for genealogy, and that's not it. Genesios is not it. 
So I don't know how exactly modern translations have gotten stuck on that as a way of sort of beginning the book of Matthew, which is not a very good beginning, I don't think, much at all. Well, here's, the, here's where it starts. Um, the Greek is on one side. The English translation from the Hebrew Bible is on the other side in the English Standard Version. And it says, these are the generations, there's that word again, the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In a sense, that phrase or that language is meant to mirror Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. There's an intentional thing here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now notice how closely parallel this is. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. We look for certain things in parallel structures. One of those things is heavens. Obviously, it's there. Earth is there. Creation is there. And the implication is that they were created by God because that's the end of the sort of the, 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 though God is not mentioned specifically here, there's a passive verb. I mean, they were created by God. So the question is, what's left? We have the idea of beginning and we have the idea of generations. I want you to keep that in mind. That in fact, the idea of generation here is not like the, the XYZ generation, right? Or the millennial generation or this generation or the, 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 the other generation. It is the idea of, of generating, the act of generating, the act of creating, the act of turning over, the act of producing something. That's what the word generation stands for there. It's a word about the origin. It's a word about beginning. So the, the, the word that is the most parallel to the word generations here, which is this phrase here, biblos geneseos, is the word beginning. Think about that for a moment. All right, here's another. Well, I'll show it to you this way. Uh, imagine two bookends. One bookend says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The second bookend, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. And what's in the middle? What book is in the middle? It's the days of creation. It's the six days of creation followed by the one day of rest. Here's the second example. Genesis, Genesis 2.4. This is Genesis 5.1. little different. little different use of the phrase. We see it up there, Biblos Genesios, right? And this is how I translated it very woodenly from the Greek original. This is the book of the generation of humanity. In the day God made the Adam, the Adam, not A-T-O-M, but A-D-A-M. According to the image of God, he made him male and female, he made them. Notice the switch between the singular to the plural. Male and female, he made them. And he blessed them. And he named the name of them Adam. Them, Adam, in the day that he made them. The word Adam can be a personal name, the name of a person like the first man, on the planet, but it can also refer, in the Hebrew at least, to humanity. 
And so we have this move back and forth here in this particular. This is meant to mirror another passage, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, from the very beginning, when it said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. And it goes on to say, and using very much the same words, this is passage here in 5.1 is meant in a sense to mirror Genesis 1, 26 and 27. That humanity is made in the image and the likeness of God. You know, there's a lot of discussion these days. I don't know if you've heard any of it, read any of it. We just did a podcast, by the way, the other day with a woman from uh, Wheaton College. Her name is Amy Peeler. And the question that she's asking, well, the title of her book is Women and the Gender of God. There's a lot of talk about gender these days, right? What does gender mean exactly? Male, female, other right? What are all the others exactly? Yesterday, by the way, was my birthday. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> you didn't need to do that, really. It's just a lot of birthdays right now. Went, and I took my family to a place not far from here. It's about 40 miles. It's called St. Francis Wolf uh, Rehabilitation Center, I think is what it's called. Is that right? Recovery Center. Anyway, they take animals wolves that cannot be repopulated into the wild and they take care of them and we were moving and we were having this tour we were moving from one to the next and they were talking about how they are pack animals and how these wolves have been have been um because they've been separated sometimes from others they they have takes them a little while to, to get together with other wolves and cooperate but they almost always choose a mate, and they choose a mate for life. They are monogamous. And so they talked about the process by which they would do that. They would let them. It take about a year for them to select a mate. And one of the people who was in the crowd says, and the male will always choose a female, or a female will always choose a male. And somebody in the crowd asked, what, does, a, does a female ever choose a female? With the expectation that, of course, happens all the time. In fact, she said, we've been here about 30 years. This never happened. There's this expectation. What do we make of this idea of gender and the question of gender? And particularly as it refers to God. And, I, and, and this becomes a big issue for a lot of women in the church because all the time it's God, he, God, he. God he and so a lot of the conversation these days has been over the question how does gender relate to God well some people say well God is gender he's masculine we should think of him as masculine mask God the father God the son masculine we should not think of him any other way others would say and have said well God is beyond gender Gender doesn't apply to God. God's not a creature like we are. He is beyond gender. Or another way of saying that is God is genderless. Doesn't have gender. Not that God is beyond gender, it's just he doesn't have gender. But I think there's actually a better way to think about it. Take a look at what it says here. We are made in the image of God, male and female what if the here's a possibility what if god is the fullness of gender of all gender 
male and female, of both. What if God is the one who describes for us what a true male is, what a true female is, that God is not beyond gender or gender less, but maybe just possibly God is the fullness, the completeness of gender. We're able to look and see a number of things in the Bible that would suggest that. I mean, there are things, obviously, where God is protector. God is the one who, who uh, uh, both generates and produces and protects and provides. And we see also God is the one who nurtures. God is the one who comforts. God is the one sometimes nursing back the young. Right? Some, of the, some of that language is used of God as well. So as we think about this and we think about humanity, the beginning of humanity here, this is the book of the beginning of humanity, how humanity was generated. And it all started with Adam. It all started with Eve, made in the likeness of God. And and who is God? What do we say of God? What do we make of God in all these discussions? I, I don't really know what to make of it. I just don't think that we've kind of arrived exactly at the right way to think about these questions. That's just me, though. Maybe you have the solution. Maybe you have the answer to that. And so it says, the book of the generation of humanity, when God made the Adam, that is humanity, according to the image of God, he made him. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them. He named them Adam, humanity. In the day that God made them. That's the other phrase, the other time Biblos Gnesios occurs in, in the Hebrew Bible. It's the only two times that it occurs. What happens next in the text of Genesis 5 is it's a, a genealogy. A genealogy from Adam down to Noah. Adam to Noah. The best book on the genealogy genealogies of the Bible has been written by a woman from Texas, not far from here. Her name is Nancy Dawson. She wrote it at the Lanier Theological Library. A lot of the book was published last year. It's called uh, All the Generations of the Bible. It's a wonderful book. Uh, I'm hopeful that one day we can get an opportunity to chat with her at the library about it. She's actually a scientist by training, but she took up the questions of history So I think what Matthew is doing is Matthew intentionally with the first two words of his book, Biblos Genesios, is taking us back to Genesis. He's taking us back there to do two things. Number one, he wants to provide a framework for the genealogy of Jesus that's coming in the very next verse, verse 2. It says Adam, you know, sorry, Abraham, starts with Abraham, not Adam. Abraham, David, and Messiah. We'll see more of that in a minute. And then I think what he wants to do is provide an overview of the entire book. Scholars call this a superscription. It's like a subtitle to the book. The book was never given a title by the author, Matthew. But it was, in a sense, given the subtitle. And he gave him the subtitle. The, this is a book about the, the generation, the origin the beginnings of Jesus the Messiah. So the entire story from before he was born till after his death, burial, resurrection, and commissioning the disciples on the Mount of Commission, 
where he said, go make disciples. All of that is the beginning of the good news. What that means is that you and I in the church, we are the continuation of the good news. He's not gone. He's still present. He's present by the Spirit. He's working in the Spirit, by the Spirit, through the Spirit to accomplish the things that he wants. He does that through the church. You and I are are part of that new creation. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You're a part of that new generation. In one place in the, in, the, in, the, in the epistles, it's described as a new race of people. New race of people who are followers of Jesus and uh, living, living out his, his life. So here, instead of the book of the genealogy, which is, I think, as we ought to say, and by the way, the word genealogy comes from this word, genesis. That's the Greek word. Some of you Greek folks who've been taking Greek will recognize it. When we, when we transliterate that, render that into English alphabetic characters, gamma, G, epsilon, E, nu, N, epsilon, sigma, iota, sigma, Genesis. This is a book about the Genesis, the origin, the beginning of Jesus the Messiah. This is how it all started. I think that's Matthew's claim from the very beginning. And he finds the language from Genesis to be able to sort of promote that and say that we're part of this new creation. The new creation is not started in the end of the world. It starts in the middle of time. That's why we have A.D. now and B.C. then. A.D. now and B.C. then, middle of time. And there is Isaiah. Isaiah is the prophet of the new creation. Go back and read the second, oh, the last 15 chapters of Isaiah. And by the way, this is a very muscular Isaiah. He's been working out. He's been eating his spinach. He's got his Popeye arms out there. He's a a strong guy, right? I think that's the right way for us to begin and to think about it. Well, and then, then we begin the genealogy itself, the genealogy proper. And this is the old King James. Does anybody miss the King James? I do too. I do too. I like this. Abraham begat Isaac. I like that. For a couple of reasons. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judah and his brothers. Begatting sounds like you're doing something. Right? I'm, I'm doing something here. Some translations will simply say that Abraham was the father of Isaac. Ho, ho, hum. He's the father of Isaac. I think there's more to it. This is actually an active verb. Egenesin, which sounds a whole lot like geneseos, birthing, begatting. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. And it goes on. And it gives us a kind of a sense of the people who are a part of the the family of Jesus, the ancestry of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of names here. We're not going to go through the whole thing. But I just want to give you just a little bit of a flavor of something that I think is really remarkable in the world at that time. Judah begat Faris and Zara of Tamar. Notice the reference here to a woman. That's pretty remarkable. You go throughout. There's 42 names of men here. There's only five women. 
Most genealogies you look at from the ancient world, particularly those of royalty or those who presume to be royalty, no women are mentioned despite the fact they're pretty important and begetting. You do all the work. We have all the fun. Right? So, and it's very literal. The language is very little. Judah fathered Pharis and Zara ectes Tamar. Out of Tamar. These children, these brothers came out of her. It's a beautiful picture. It's a hard picture, but it's nevertheless there. And Salmon begat Boaz out of Rahav. Rahab. And Boaz begat Obed out of Ruth. Another woman. And then, oh gosh, you know, I forgot to highlight these. See? Last one. This is the one that's a little little bit, well, it it means something. David, King David, Eganason fathered Solomon, Solomon, uh, uh, Solomon, Ectes, but now there's a name of a man. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, what this means is this, out of the wife of Uriah, David begat Solomon. Intentionally, he brings us back to the fact, the ugly fact, that David fathered Solomon through the wife of another man. A man whom he had murdered. A rabbi friend of mine tells us that King David violated nine out of the ten commandments. But he still was favored by God. Forgiven by God. I don't know what you've done. I don't know how often you've done it. But I know that you're no, if you're, you're no different, you're no worse than King David And you can be forgiven, you can be restored, you can be made new. That's what David's life is all about. It's about, it's, it's about so much, but in this one episode that gives us King Solomon, who became the next king after him, David fathered Solomon through the wife of another man. Scandalous. On everybody's radar, scandalous. So there are five women mentioned here in this particular genealogy. If you go to Luke, by the way, Luke is the most sympathetic toward women, the gospel most sympathetic, but he doesn't mention any women in the genealogy. Matthew does. Why? I think there's a purpose. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, who is who? Bathsheba, exactly. The woman Bathsheba is the woman who's named in the scriptures as the wife of Uriah who had this affair with King David. And of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus. I think part of what Matthew's doing, won't spend a lot of time with this, is he's, he's trying to signal something that's new. Something is new. You're made new in the kingdom of God. The world is being made new. The role of women is being redefined, redeployed for the good of the kingdom. Let me show you how radical that is. Let 
In the world at that time, women, all women, were considered second-class citizens. All women. More than half of you here are women. You would have been considered second-class in the world. You would have always taken a back seat to man, no matter how inferior that man was in the eyes of everyone else. Meet a man named Aristotle. Aristotle is very influential, one of the most influential people of the uh, past, oh, 3,000 years. He was a philosopher. This is what he looked like, according to the statuary. He, was, uh, he lived about 62 years, I think that's right, if I do my math correctly, uh, and died in 322 B.C. He was a student of uh, Plato. He was a tutor of Alexander the Great. Very influential. Scholars still appeal to Aristotle to think about uh, a lot of things, about oratory, about some th- aspects of science and thinking and reasoning, but also about morality. This is what he said in a book called Poetics. Woman may be said to be an inferior man. It's all women. You take the worst man you've ever seen, woman, you're less than that. You're lower than that. Because to be a man and to have a man's body and to have a man's intellect and to have a man's whatever made you a little higher on the pecking order. And that mattered in the world so much at that time. Here's another statement he made. The female is, as it were, a mutilated male. Right? Now, he has lots of reasons for saying that. And he'll go on to express that, but that's his, that's his gut feeling. As he looks at women, as he analyzes, as he does his sort of morality and ethics and politics, women, you're a mutilated man. Another saying. Now, ladies, tell me if this is true. Females are weaker than men. Is that right? That's true? Not true? All right. Females are colder in nature. Is that right? Now, cold here doesn't mean uh, cold shoulder. Cold means (laughs) cold. All right. Yes or no? I heard a yes. My wife's always getting a sweater. You know, going to church, get a sweater. Go to the store, get a sweater. Go to a restaurant, get a sweater. I don't know. I don't have a sweater. I don't own a sweater. Uh, Go outside in August, get a sweater. (laughs) Just kidding about that last one. Um, but, but you get the idea. Now, are all of his observations wrong? I don't know. I don't know if women are generally just feel cold or have to have the air a little higher, you know, or the heat a little higher in the house. Here's another statement, a little more in depth. The female is softer in, comp- in disposition than the male. Softer in disposition. Is more mischievous. Less simple. 
Simple, by the way, is good. He views simplicity as good. Simplicity is predictability. Simple is good. Less simple means you're hard to figure out. You're complex. Men, no, more impulsive, more attentive to the nurture of the young. Some of those, perhaps, are right. The male, on the other hand, is more spirited than the female. Taking risks, putting himself out there. He's more savage. He's more simple. That's good. Simplicity is good in this sort of taxonomy. More simple, and he's less cunning, which means, women, you're pretty cunning. The traces of these differentiated characteristics are more or less visible everywhere, but they are especially visible where the character is more developed, and that, most of all, in man. The character of humanity is best on display in the male of the species. That's how women are being viewed. You say, okay, well, that's, that's, just the, that's just the intellectual people. That's the people that teach at Harvard. And, you know, all those big universities, Ivy League, that's, that's just the intellectual talk around in, in the books that nobody reads. But if, if, if a number of scholars are right, sociologists, what is being said in the, in the classrooms in Harvard and Yale and Penn State in one decade is going to be now repeated and believed and practiced by the common people, by everybody else. Because they have such political capital and importance and sway compared to people teaching in other universities, let's say. Here's another example. This is a letter that was found in a trash heap in Egypt about 100 miles south of the Mediterranean Sea, about 100 miles south from the city of Alexandria. And uh, it's, it's beautifully preserved. It comes from and is dated the year 1 B.C., so right about the time that Jesus was born. And it's by a fellow named Hilarion. He wrote it to his sister Alice. Now some believe that that word sister is a reference to husband, but there's, that's not necessarily true that he's his husband. But he is directing what happens at the family because that's what guys did. He says to his sister Alice, many greetings to my lady Berus uh, and Apollinarian. So he's extending greetings to the more extended family. Know that I'm still in Alexandria. He's on a work job thing up there to make some money and send it back home. That's his purpose. Don't worry uh, if they, that is the other part of the team who's working up here with me, wholly set out and come back. I'm staying on in Alexandria. I ask you, I entreat you, take care of the child. And if I receive my pay soon, I'll send it up to you. All right? So he's expecting to get paid, and he's going to send it on up. Above all, if you bear a child and it is male, let it be. If it's female, cast it out. Expose it. Very common practice in the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean world at that time. If you had a male child, you would keep it, you would, you would love on it, you would preserve it. But if you had a female child, you would set it out. 
You don't want to squander your meager resources on raising a female. Because females are worth so much less than a man. This is the way it was understood. This is the way it was practiced by the most common people at this time. Very common practice. Early Christians were known as the people who would rescue these children. When they were exposed, very often a slave trader would come through, grab them, raise them, and put them into the slave trade. Often those children were destroyed, eaten by animals, wild animals, if they were not rescued, by, taken by somebody. Or they would just simply die of exposure. It was, a, it was kind of a, abortion in a way, afterbirth abortion, because it was female. They did this, by the way, too, to disabled male children, not just female. But if the child were a male and there was some disfigurement, something that made him uh, uh, look strange or odd, or, then you would expose the male child too as well. So this is the way it was. In early Christianity, there's a huge change because it's a new creation. And this is demonstrated by Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. They had experienced the Spirit in a powerful way. Jesus said they would stay in Jerusalem, experience the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. And when you do, you can be our witnesses in the whole world. And so Peter, when he's preaching, he appealed to the prophet Joel, who 600 years earlier had said this, in the last days it shall be that I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh, not male flesh, but all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. They will be my spokesmen. They will speak on my behalf. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on servants, the lowest people imaginable in that culture. Male and female, in those days I'm going to pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. Paul says it another way. Galatians. So many of you, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. He doesn't say as many as you guys. As many of you, male, female. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And because of that, you are the offspring. You have been adopted into the family of Abraham. So we're all, all of us, can say Abraham is our father. Maybe not genetically, but in a spiritual, deep, abiding sense, we are all the children of outside, of 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 Abraham, who is the one who is charged to be this blessing to the world. And this is the word. Uh, Matthew's genealogy, the other thing about it is, that is fascinating is that Ruth, Uriah, uh, and, uh, and, and Rahab were all outsiders. Rahab was a Canaanite, not a Jew, an Israelite. Uh, Ruth was a Moabite, and she's brought in. And then Bathsheba had been the wife of a Hittite. Now her name is a Jewish name, but that could have been given to her later. She may have been Hittite herself. We don't know. We don't have enough information to say, but they are outsiders. Back in Genesis 12, back to Genesis, 
God says to Abraham, in you, Abraham, in you, through you, by you, by the son of Abraham, Jesus, all the families of the earth shall receive a blessing. There's a new creation going on, and we're part of that new creation. And that's a beautiful thing. Now, we come to really quickly, and we've got to be quick about this. I can't see the time back there. Can I see the time? No, I can't see the time. Oh, okay. All right, got to be quick. Come to the wise men. You ever called, heard them called wise men before? No, they weren't very wise. Uh, at least they weren't by Jewish standards wise men. They were actually from Persia. They were astrologers. They were uh, magicians, not in the sense that we illusionists, but people who, who uh, dealt with spiritual powers. It's really better just to say coming of the Magi, which is exactly what the Greek says, the magoi. And it's better to leave that untranslated, I think, than it is to call them wise men or we three kings of Orion R. Because there's no evidence that they were kings either. But the whole episode starts with a guy named Herod. Herod is, is, the, is the guy who's king over this region at that particular time. You know, he was king from 37 to 4 B.C. And he was not a rightful king at all. And so the story of Jesus, who is the rightful king of Israel, who has this prestigious uh, genealogy, is now pitted over against this other king, this puppet king. He was an Edomian, not an Israelite, not a Jew at all. He was a violent man. All the records that we have of him are are records of violence, of treating people horribly, particularly, quote, his own people, the people over whom he was reigning at the time. And he was a puppet king of Rome. He was doing exactly what Rome wanted him to do. He was an illegitimate king. And his story contrasts so strongly with the one who is the true king who has been born into the world. So he w- it starts this way. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the time of King Herod. 2 verse 1. It says, Magi came from the east. Most likely Persian astrologers. We don't know how many there were in their entourage. They didn't travel alone. Could have been dozens of more people. Uh, We don't know that they traveled on camels. Except for the fact that there's a passage in Isaiah, chapter 60. We don't have time to look at it. It says that when when the, the nations come, they will give gifts of camels. And they will give gifts of gold and frankincense. They don't mention myrrh. And they will bring all sorts of gifts to Israel, to to Jerusalem in particular. So we think that's where we get the word camel from, the idea of camel. They may have known the Hebrew Scriptures, and I think they did, because there was a huge group of Jews who had been exiled over to that part of the world. And they were studying Scriptures, reading Scriptures, copying Scriptures, disseminating the Scriptures, trying to make converts where they were in the Babylonian exile. And that's the area of the world that we're talking about. We're talking about this part of the world over here. This is the Roman Empire. This is the full extent of the Roman Empire. And it never made it over here to Persia. They never were able to penetrate. Oh, they they had occasional penetrations into the region, but ultimately they were repelled, and Persia remained separate uh, during that time. But these astrologers came. 
These astrologers came, and they were experts in the night sky. Magi came from the east, and they knew to hedge Jerusalem. And the reason I think they knew is because they knew the scriptures, and here's a bunch of them. That's just a few of them. These scriptures say that the nations are going to come to Jerusalem. They're going to seek God in Jerusalem. They're going to seek a king in Jerusalem. And they knew those texts. They knew those scriptures. So much more there. So here they are. You know, how long has it been since you've seen the Milky Way? Right? Long time? At sea level, all the humidity, all the light that we have, you've got to go pretty far away to see it. And they came and asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. That's, I think, a bad translation. We're going to stay with it, though. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Well, Herod heard about that. He was troubled. And he called together all of his chief priests and teachers because he didn't know the scriptures. He called them together and said, now, where is this supposed to happen? And in one accord... Without any debate, they said, Bethlehem, because they appealed to the scriptures, and here it is, Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem's a small city, maybe 2,000 people, maybe 2,000 at that time. It's bigger today. For you shall come forth for me, uh, for from, uh, <laughs> from you shall come forth for me, God, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth as of old, of ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them, Israelites, up until the time when she, Mary, who is in labor, has given birth. Then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And the prophecy continues. It says, he shall stand and shepherd the flock. And that word shepherd is so keen because there had been so many bad shepherds so many bad rulers, so many bad leaders. Micah says the reason that we're in this world of hurt is because we have such a leadership crisis. So many bad leaders. How is it that we have so many bad leaders among our people? He shall stand, that is this new king, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, he shall dwell, they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. The whole earth, the whole earth is going to know about this. This is the whole prophecy. Matthew doesn't quote the whole thing, but he quotes a lot of it. But clearly Herod was a bad shepherd, a illegitimate shepherd, the epitome of a bad shepherd. He killed his people, he tortured them, he neglected them. He cared about himself and he cared about his power more than anything else. But the prophecy says there's coming another king, another shepherd who is going to come to the people. That king, of course, we know to be Jesus of Nazareth. And that's the whole story that we're telling in this coming, in this time. A few other things. This is, uh, it's, it's interesting. You know, I never had noticed this. I don't know why read this many, many times. When Herod first talked to the wise men, it was in a big public setting. There were people standing around, his aides, his followers, but he decided, I need a secret meeting with them because I, I need to figure something out. 
They talk about this star appearing. They talked about this king. I need to know when this king was born. And so he secretly ascertained from them, when did the star appear? And he sent them to Bethlehem. He, Herod, sent them to Bethlehem from, because of the prophecy. They, they would have found it anyway, but Herod was the means to go, for them to go and worship the child. They said, you go and worship the child when you find him. Search diligently for him. When you find him, come back and tell me, and I want to go and worship him too. Not really. That wasn't his intention. His intention was to spear him through if he found him. This is a modern Bethlehem, 36,000 people. Ancient Bethlehem, maybe 2,000 people. The surrounding region, maybe a little bit more. That's as, as of 2019. And uh, think about the stars for a moment. Not many of us are experts in the night sky. Are you? Can you find them? Can you find the constellations? Take a look at this. It's a picture of the night sky. What part of the sky am I looking at there? Do we know? Are we aware? You know, I've always thought of the star of Bethlehem as some supernova that was in the light in the sky so bright and so brilliant. Or maybe a comet that was streaking through the sky. It just awed everybody who saw it. What if it was something different? What if this one who was born in a manger when there was no room for them? This one who was born to poor parents who was born in a little place called Bethlehem, a little small place. Even the scripture says, hey, you're not, you're not the least. Of the, you're, not, you're not too little. <laughs> you're little, but you're not that little. What if it was something more subtle than that? What if it was something maybe that only those who knew the stars like they knew the back of their hand thought about? Instead of a supernova, some brilliant light, it's more romantic to think of it in those terms, but uh-oh, I didn't mean to do that. That was my back. No, I'm just kidding. I'm gonna, now, I want you to watch this. I'm going to add a star. See if you can see it. Oh, no, I didn't do that. What's it doing? It's going crazy. Maybe he's not going to do it. I was going to add a star. Here's, here's, here's what I'll do. Maybe I think I can do it in a minute. What if, what if these guys knew the sky so well and they knew everything, just like a neurosurgeon can take a look at that and figure out. Now, they're, they're experts in reading these things. I'm not. I have no clue what I'm looking at. Some of you may know exactly what this is or what this back looks like. Is this a good one? Is this a bad one? I've had two back surgeries, so I've had a lot of these procedures before. But as I looked at my first one, I said, golly, what in the heck? They know exactly what they're looking for. You tell them where the pain is, they know exactly where to look. Maybe they knew the sky the way a neurosurgeon knows an x-ray or an MRI. So here's the night sky. Let's see if we can get it to do it this time. I'm going to add a star subtly. See if you can see it. You see it? Anybody see it? 
I had it a star. Want me to do it again? All right, I'll add another one. Here we go. It's not another one, same one. See it? No, we didn't. But if you had been an expert in the night sky, if you knew it like the back of your hand, it could well be that it is this star right here that we've added. Pretty subtle, huh? Right there. What if, the, what if that? Something simple. Something elegant. Was exactly what the star of Bethlehem was about. I don't know. I'm just wondering if the God who did something so simple as to put a baby in a manger did something so simple as to put just a little faint light in the sky to guide those who only know exactly where to look for it. (laughs) Could it have been a comet? Yeah, maybe. Could it have been a star, a regular star? Could it have been some other sound of astral phenomena? Maybe. Could it have been a UFO? No. I don't think so. So, after they heard the king, they went to their way. The star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the baby was. And they went into the house. We're going to have to skip through some of this. These are some prophecies about from the Old Testament about a star. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, out of Israel. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Those two pieces, the star and the scepter, become important images for what's happening. That's why the star is on the the flag of Israel today. The Magen David is the reason that it's on the flag of Israel today because that prophecy from the book of Numbers, scepter will not depart from Judah, it says, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nations, all the nations, shall be his. Back in Genesis again. The very last chapters of Genesis describe this. This is when Jacob, by the way, is giving a blessing to his son at that time, his son Judah. And they give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. By the way, you can buy this today on Etsy. Um, if you would like this, this, you go to Etsy, you can buy this and have it as part of your Christmas decorations if you would like. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, a lot of stuff we could say about that. Uh, the slaughter of the innocents, historians estimate that about 10 to 20 children would have been killed in a city like Bethlehem, the size of Bethlehem at that time. I think it was more than that. We don't know exactly. When you consider mortality rates, when you consider a lot of things about populations at that time, just general populations, these were boy babies who had been run through by that. It would not have made the newspapers, but it did make it into the Holy Scriptures because of its happening there at the time. Boy, I wish we had time to look at so much more of this. We're going to have to go. Our, um, sorry, gosh. Going back, going back, going back. It's time to wrap up. I'm so proud that I did that. I don't know. Now, Mark would have done a better job with it than me, but uh, that's time to wrap up. I just wanted just a few things to think about as we go today. I wish I had, there's a few more things that I wish would have loved to get to about the, 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 the slaughter of those innocent children. You know, when you think, oh gosh, it must have been thousands, and it, it's how tragic. And yes, but if you're the parent of one 
who is killed that way, it is immensely tragic. Whether it was 10 or whether it was 10,000, it is a gut-wrenching thing because parents should not lose children. Not to a sword, not to a spear, not to a disease, not to a car accident. All of those things. And, And there's such grief that comes out of that. And a part of that is a recognition, I think, and the prophecy talks about the fact, yes, we are grieving over this, and yet there is still, at the end of the day, hope. Because we will see our children again. We will see our sons, we will see our daughters, we'll see our husbands, we'll see our friends. We will see them again. And a part of that is what Christmas is all about. So Christmas is about new creation. We look at the book of Genesis, it's about recognizing the fact that in Jesus of Nazareth, there is a new creation. We are born again into that creation, and everybody who is in Christ is a new creation. You're part of that. And if you're part of that, there is great reason to rejoice for so much. It's about extended family. It's about extended family, and you're bringing all the family together right at this moment in history. But it's also about remembering your ancestors, the people who went before. You get people around the table, and one's a Democrat, and one voted for Trump, and you, it, Christmas, and it's hard, right? It's hard sometimes with family. They don't get along so well. But a part of what we need to do at Christmas, I think, as sons and daughters and as parents is to remember our extended family, those who have passed on before, showing pictures, talking about our families, talking about Christmas past, and thinking about Christmas future. Because you and I are going to, our sojourn is going to be over before we know it. And, 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 And what happens after us? with our sons and our daughters. That's a part of our extended family. What are we leaving them? What are we bestowing upon them? And it's about joy, and it's about hope. All these things are just sort of rising to the surface in these early stories of Jesus' life. He is the beginning of the good news. We are his continuation. And we have the job of representing him beautifully in the world so that at the end of the day, God is not diminished one whit by the way that I lived, the way that you lived. The people that you made friends and and others as well. And me, all of us. What we bring to the world, what we leave to the world, with our sons and our daughters and our extended family. My hope is this is a great Christmas for you. I've been reading in a Christmas devotional this year that was left and we purchased at the last one of our last events, Amy Or Ewing. It's a beautiful devotion called Mary's Voice. I hope you're, you're doing going through that, something like that, this Christmas. Preparing your hearts, not just preparing the tree, preparing the yard, preparing the gifts, preparing your hearts as well. And that preparation, something beautiful, can and does happen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus.
that we will experience this year the hope of Christmas. Despite how bad last year may have been or the year before or the year before, we may be living in dark times. I pray that we will experience hope this Christmas that will carry us on. Help us to experience joy this Christmas. Help us to experience our family in beautiful ways and to think about our, our grandparents and our great-grandparents and those who've gone before us, who brought us to this life and brought us to faith. Help us to give thanks and to think about how we're going to leave what we're going to leave behind. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And Merry Christmas.